Welcome to the Concord Online Podcast. Each week, we're going to be bringing you sermons from Concord to be a resource for you to live on mission with us to inspire people to follow Jesus. Man, let's praise the Lord for our time of worship, can we, man? It is good to be in the presence of the Lord together. We're starting a brand new series of sermons today called Foundations, and we're really going to spend the next few weeks talking about some theological foundations that we need to have in our home. So today we'll talk about family, next week we'll talk about marriage, we'll talk about parenting, we'll talk about our finances, and we'll even talk about singleness of, of what are some foundations, theological foundations that we can put in place so that no matter what comes in this new year, we have an anchor. Like that, That's what our theology is for us. It's an anchor that we don't just run and touch, but we stand upon no matter what comes. And family is so important that we have it theologically anchored correctly so that we can see all that's happening to our families through a biblical worldview. He said, I'm going to proclaim to you today a biblical worldview, not a cultural worldview, which is going to make what I have to say uh, uncomfortable for some of us. But when we proclaim a biblical worldview, not a cultural worldview, that does not mean we do not, we, we proclaim a worldview without love. Like this worldview is the loving worldview because it's from God who so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so we need to understand as culture wants to label Christian theology and a biblical worldview as unloving, Christians themselves may be unloving in how they approach engaging culture. But the message of the gospel is the most loving message in all the earth. So God instituted really three institutions, you might say. Church, government, and the family. And if these institutions were begun by God, it should not surprise you that the enemy himself has his gaze set on destroying what God has established. You say, why is there so much turmoil in my home? Because a home built on the truths of Scripture is a target for the enemy to destroy. You say, what's wrong with our country? I believe what's wrong with our country is not going to be solved in politics and games. It's not going to be solved in economy strategies and The intellect of man, I I think the only way that we're ever going to change our culture is if the families who are building their lives upon a biblical worldview are steadfast and movable and abounding in the work of the Lord. But you say, where is a family supposed to learn how to live this way? How is this supposed to actually happen? It's supposed to happen in the coming and going of everyday life, as one generation teaches the next the truths of the scripture. Moms and dads understand the primary role in, that you play in your child's life is not just to keep them safe, that they may one day be an adult, but the primary role you play in your child's life is to teach them to love the Lord. Teaching your children to love the Lord is the goal for every Christian parent. Not teaching them to obey in church, not teaching them all the religious rules, but teaching them to simply love the Lord. 
be able to spend some time over this holiday break with my 15-year-old. We've had some great conversations. We've been in the car a lot. And we've been standing in duck blinds with no ducks flying a lot. But the conversation has been so rich. And I hope my boy, who's not in the room right now, I hope he knows that because I've told him so. Man, you don't have to be the perfect pastor's son. You just got to love the Lord, man. Just love the Lord. We'll figure everything else out, but love the Lord. We understand this being our goal from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. The scripture says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You should teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you should write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Like this picture is a picture of Morning and evening, coming and going, a father just talking about the Lord to his kids. Just declaring the goodness of his God and just pushing the children to love him. Like, like did you see, like, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. Like, the goal that the parents are teaching is teaching their children to love the Lord. Yet we live in an environment where people have grown up in church, but just a couple short generations later, those folks don't love the Lord. How does it happen? I think it happens like this. One generation loves the Lord and is bought into their local church. And, and, and by the way, I could show you with research and data, but I won't take our time, but I can show you a direct correlation between the unraveling of biblical worldview in homes of people who consider themselves Christians and, can, and I can connect that exactly to lack of church attendance. When you step out of church, you will lose the biblical worldview in the, your children's lives. One generation loves the Lord and is connected to church. But if they're not careful, they'll teach their children how to be moral and good and how to answer all of the questions. If they do not teach their children to love the Lord for themselves, when they're in late middle school, they're in high school. They'll begin to fight mom and dad about being a part of the church and coming to the church. They'll make all kinds of excuses. They'll say, none of my friends go there. But you don't go to church for your friends. They'll say, well, I don't want to be a part of that because I don't like this or I don't like that. And all of a sudden, it's about their preferences. And so what happens is families begin to go all over town and church shop so that they might find a church that their teenager would connect with. But the truth is, if their teenager would just center themselves on the word of God and love the Lord, guess what? They find the love of God and they get connected to a local church. In the next generation, grandkids of the one who loves the Lord and is connected to church because of the unsettledness of their parents, you know, they, they know about the Lord and they show up on a few occasions, but, but the pressures of travel ball and the pressures of the lake, the pressures of fun, they don't necessarily prioritize church because, you know, mom and dad aren't really connected in community. They just know the rules of religion. They don't really love the Lord. 
And so by the time the parents who love the Lord and are connected to church, by the time their great-grandkids come around, they, they may show up on Christmas and Easter, but, but they're not really connected to a local body, and they, they look more like the culture, than they look like the scripture. And what is it? Like, how does this happen? That they weren't taught to love the Lord with all of their heart, soul, and might in their comings and goings, in their beginnings and endings, at the start of their day and at the end of their day. They're not taught to know and love the Lord. You see, when we really begin to understand our task, we recognize it's not going to be accomplished by outsourcing loving the Lord to the student ministry or the kids ministry. It doesn't happen if we say, okay, church, raise our kids to know the Lord. It's not going to happen because you send your kid to Christian school or because you homeschool or because you send them on 400 mission trips. It's only going to happen if in your home you teach your children to love the Lord. So what happens? Like, What is the foundation that needs to be a part of our lives if we're going to accomplish these things? We find it in Genesis chapter 2. Stand with me and let's study it. Genesis chapter 2. So you didn't give me very long to find it. Genesis chapter 2. Table of contents turn right like four pages. Verse 24, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Scripture says, therefore, a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. This is the foundation. This is the beginning of a biblical family. Like, this is how it started. You know, we, we all come at this from so many different angles and directions. I feel like I need to state a disclaimer as I get going this morning. Like, what I'm going to declare to you today is, is God's ideal for family. And if we're not careful, all we will see is how we fall short of this standard because every one of us falls short of this ideal. You may think your family is, man, the strongest family in this church. Like, you've got it all together. Like, the kids are perfect. Like, everything's great. We know you're jacked up. <laughs> you also may think, like, my family, like, everybody judges us. Like, we don't have it all together. We don't look right. We don't act like. We don't have the right clothes. Like, hey, every single family in this room, including mine, is in desperate need of the mercy and grace of God. Absolutely right. And so I don't, I don't really know where you are today, but I'm going to preach to the ideal, and I'm going to point you to Jesus who extends his grace, and it's not that you close the gap, it's you throw yourself upon him, and he closes the gap Correct. from wherever you think your family might be. Genesis 24 starts with the simple word, therefore, and anytime you see the word therefore in the scripture, you have to ask the question, you know the question, what is that therefore? And so the reason it's there is because Genesis 1 and 2 is the, is the creation account. Like Genesis chapter 1 is kind of like your chronological creation account. Genesis chapter 2, he kind of zooms in, so to speak, on some moments. And so God had created the earth in seven days and called it very good. 
And then in chapter 1, verse 18, he's like, hey, it's not good for man to be alone. So now he's kind of zooming in, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 18, he's like, it's not good for man to be alone. So he's like zooming in here. It's like, hey, it's very good, but, but Adam has a problem because he can't fulfill chapter 1, verse 28, when God had said, go be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I mean, can you just put yourself in Adam's shoes for a moment? Like you're the only human. You know, you're the, you're the only one. And, and God's command has been fill the earth and multiply. And so he's just been hanging out naming these animals. And you're like, not like me, not like me, not like me. You're seeing everybody else has a companion. Probably a discouraging time. And so God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. And from Adam, he brought forth Eve. And Eve fulfilled Adam in, in every way. Eve fulfilled Adam so that he'd have pleasure. Eve fulfilled Adam so that he would have fulfillment and he could accomplish his purpose. Like Eve was able to accomplish all these things. In chapter two, verse 23, when Adam woke up from his sleep, he said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Like you can almost sense the desperation when he's like, at last, like someone like me. Why was he so exasperated? Why was he so excited to see Eve? Like why was his response this way first? This passage shows us that we were created for relationships. Like, why was Adam so fired up to meet Eve? It wasn't just because, like, you know, she's a woman and they're standing there naked. It was because all of a sudden he's like, like, hey, like, here's someone I can know. Here's someone I can be known with. Here's someone that, that is, is like me and we can do this together. You see, the, re, the relationships we were created for are relationships of intimacy and being known. I mean, I mean, Adam's tired of looking at these animals and saying, hey man, what's up? Now Adam has someone to speak with. Adam has someone to love. Adam has someone to be fulfilled with, to, to accomplish his purpose with. You say, well, what was Adam's purpose? Well, he said, be, you know, fulfill the earth or fill the earth and, and multiply. Like he's told him to like go have children and stuff. But did you also recognize in Genesis chapter two that, that he put Adam in the garden to tend it and keep it? And so this is a different sermon, but it's just a thought. Like God gave Adam a job before sin entered the world. God also gave him a job before he gave him a wife. Hello? <laughs> Sister, I just, I couldn't keep going when you said, amen. You, you see, all that Adam craved, God gave him in Eve. It's, she was not a burden or a boredom. She was the best part of his life. And she was different, but she was like him. She was a woman. She looked different. She had different desires. She was her own individual. But yet God gave her to Adam, and together they would accomplish great things. Listen to me now. We, we live in a culture that wants to erase the distinctions between men and women. But God is the one who made distinctions between men and women, and the distinctions between men and women is one of God's greatest gifts to us. 
And so it's not that we, that we try to erase the distinction, it's we celebrate how God made two genders and how they complement one another so that we can find fulfillment, pleasure, and purpose according to his plan. You see, too many of us are buying the culture a lie, but God made men and women different and this was good, very good in fact. And as he made men and women distinct, when men and women come together, they can create, they can fulfill, they can multiply, and they can become people on mission with God to accomplish his purposes. This is also why, and while I'm here, this is also why biblical Christians can't reconcile what culture calls same-sex marriage. You see, marriage is so much more than a living arrangement. It's the origin of a family unit of complementary genders who fulfill one another. It's the beginning of accomplishing purpose to multiply and fill the earth. And it's how we enjoy one another. Now, now, I just don't believe this is hate speech because I don't say this with hatred towards anyone. I say this with an understanding of If I'm going to call myself a Christ follower, I live under the authority of the word of God. And God's word is clear and not able to be manipulated on this one. Culture wants to say, well, what about this? And well, what about that? But if you're serious about the scripture, you understand that marriage is one man and one woman in a covenant relationship for life. So Adam was craving this relationship, and God gave him Eve. Eve was the solution for God when he said it wasn't good for man to be, not be alone. I mean, in the passage, God takes the initiative. It was God's action to create Eve for Adam. And so God here is moving, but it's important for you to see that Adam had a relationship with God before Adam had a relationship with Eve. And friends, if we get these two messed up in our families, we will ruin the relationship that we've craved. Far too many times we ask our spouse to fulfill for us what only God can fulfill. Your spouse will never give you peace. God will. Your spouse cannot be your source of joy. God can. Your spouse will not give you purpose. Only God can do this. And so some of us are casting a burden where God created a spouse not for burden but for blessing. Think about if God gave you someone and all you've done is burden them up under a weight they were never intended to carry because you're looking to them to give you what only God can give you. We were created for these relationships, but this relationship does not replace the primary relationship of my life, and that is loving God with all of my heart, my soul, and my might. And so many of us today, we we need to look at this and begin to recognize and wrestle with the relational strife in my life. What that really is, is the exposing of the cracks of my foundation in Christ. Like if I'm strained relationally with my spouse or strained relationally with my family, it's actually not about the relationship with my family. It's more about my relationship with God. 
Because when I have a relationship with God that is firm, built on the foundation of Christ, he orders every relationship from there. And so many of us, we're trying to fix our relationship with our spouse and we're neglecting our relationship with God and we'll never fix the relationship with spouse before we fix the relationship with God. And we see God speaking with Adam, loving Adam, and providing for Adam. And this is what he wants to do in us. So look, if, if we're not looking to Christ for our purpose, man, our insecurities are gonna rage and we're gonna hurt the people closest to us. If we're not looking to Christ for our fulfillment, like, we'll step on anybody in anything to feel fulfilled and will hurt people that we love. Like, if, if we're trying to find pleasure in worldly ways, man, we will destroy our future for a moment of pleasure. And so we've got to start with the right relationship with Christ. If this past year was a tough year in your marriage, before you need to try to get somebody to fix your spouse, you need to get God to fix you. And so you start with going deep in the word. You start with depending on Christ, with surrendering your life to him fresh and anew and saying, God, work in me. Like if it's been a difficult season with your kids, create an environment in your home where Christ is the center and build your relationship with your kids through Christ, not how they perform on a ball field, not how much money they can earn at their job, not what grades they can make at their school, but who they are in Christ. This is how we cultivate those relationships and this is how relational strife is healed. Look, but before I move on, like, let me just make this statement to you as well. Like, this does not mean that a person should stay in a relationship where there's abuse. Like when I make those statements, I fear that some would hear, well, I just gotta, man, fix my relationship with God, but yet your spouse is beating you or is emotionally abusive or sexually abusive. Like, God hates abuse. What abuse is, is abuse is neglecting the imago Dei, the mark of God in the abused life. So the abuser is offending God as he's treating his creation in an abusive way. And so what you need to understand is like, like it's not like, okay, I just, just hope one day he'll get his life right with God and stop beating me. That is not spiritual. That is foolish. And you need to find freedom and you need to find safety and you need to find help and hope. And many times in situations of abuse, the only hope there is for any type of reconciliation of that relationship is that there's a season of separation, deep and thorough counseling, and possibly even legal consequences. That's the only hope of, of reconciliation. So here's what I want you to do. Like, like, listen to me today. If you're in an abusive situation, you do not have to hide. You do not have to be ashamed. We want to help you. And so grab your phone and you just text the word get help to 57158. One of our pastors is going to reach out to you today. And we'll begin to start making a plan. We'll talk with you and we'll determine what the necessary immediate steps for your safety might be. We'll get involved who we have to get involved. We're not going to spread it wide and we're not going to tell everybody but there could be a situation where we have to tell some folks and we're gonna walk with you through that situation as well. But we will help you. 
57158, get help. Don't stay in that abusive relationship. You see, the point of all of this is to show you how we were created for relationships and help you see how your relationships can be cultivated in a healthy way so that you have a firm foundation in Christ. Second, notice with me in the passage. Not just that we were created for a relationship, but God's plan for relationships leads to flourishing. God's plan for relationships leads to flourishing. Look at verse 24. A man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Like, this is the beginning moment. This is where family originates. And it starts with the change of relational order in your life. It's so interesting when I think about verse 24 because God is saying this to Adam and Eve who were created by God. Like, they don't have a mother and father they're worried about. So he's obviously speaking to Adam and Eve, going, hey, you're going to have kids, and one day those kids are going to grow up, and they're going to want to get married, and you got to get out of their business. (laughs) So he's obviously speaking like, like, this is the order, this is how it goes, looking forward of what it might be. The relational order changes at the moment the covenant commitment is made. The primary relationship in your life is now no longer your mother and your father, but your spouse. This doesn't mean you can't have a close relationship with mom and dad, but it means they're secondary and not involved in the decision-making process of how you lead your life. So moms and dads, hear me now. Like, like I have not walked in these shoes, and I can't imagine how difficult this is going to be. But if you want to see your children's family flourish... Stay out of it. Stay out of it, man. Well, they're not raising them right. Stay out of it and pray for them, that God can move in their life. Well, they're, they're going to invite so much hardship. Stay out of it and pray for them. Well, you know, I could probably fund it so they wouldn't have to stay out of it and, pay, and don't pay for it. <laughs> Like, God's plan for relationships leads to flourishing. So they have to leave and hold fast. Leave and cleave. Like, that's when it begins, and that's the call. Like, young people ask me all the time about, like, what do they have to have figured out before they get married? And I take them to this passage of Scripture. Like, before you get married, you do not need to be dependent upon your parents or your spouse's parents in any way. It'll hurt your marriage. You need to have a job so that you can provide for your spouse and you need to have a place for your family to live. You, don't, you say, well, how much money should we have in our bank account? A lot less than you think. So you don't, you don't think we have to, I think you need a job. And you need a budget so that your income exceeds what you spend. You live within your means and you figure it out together. Can I tell you, man, some of the greatest times in our life was when Bridget and I were sharing pimento and cheese sandwiches, hoping that somebody would bless us with a gift card to crystals. You know what I'm talking about? You get them like four mini burgers. I don't even know if that's real meat. But like, like. Some of us are like, well, i got to have all this money saved, and i can have all this stuff, i can have all these things. Man, you need a job, and you need a place to live. 
And it has become culturally popular to wait longer to get married. That is foolish, man. Marry the wife of your youth. Get married soon. Get off daddy's payroll. You're welcome. And set and start your family, man. Like, start your family. But understand, when you start your family, you're leaving and you're cleaving physically and spiritually. You understand, when you get married, you leave the spiritual covering of your mom and dad, and now you have to function according to what the New Testament declares as a biblical family. That's, that's why marriage ceremonies are so important to me. I, I know it's popular to kind of just have a quick marriage and just, man, I just think there's something about a marriage ceremony that when we move past as a culture that we're going to regret in a very short time. Because you see, when a bride's father walks her down the aisle, and he puts her hand in the hand of a young man that don't make as much as him. That has come and asked his permission and he said yes, but he didn't want to. When that Daddy places that hand of his daughter into the hand of that groom. He is spiritually saying, you are in his care. And when that covenant is made of vows, it, that is a solemn oath and an eternal promise before God and witnesses that you will leave and cleave. And when those rings or put on those fingers. That is an earthly symbol of the love of an eternal God made known through the marriage of a husband and wife. You see, it's so more than just dresses and flowers, and videographers and venues. Fear that because weddings have become so expensive will see wedding as a production, not as a worship service. But a wedding is worship because God's plan for family leads to flourishing. Look, I, I know when I say this, like some of us, we, we feel guilt and we feel shame because maybe our marriage did not go what we thought it would go or maybe We've done it a different way. Like, again, that's not my intention to bring shame. My intention is to show you from Scripture and to call you to step up to God's plan for your family because that's where flourishing happens. And that flourishing takes place. Look at the end of verse 24 as the Scripture says, they should become one flesh. Like many times we just interpret this to be sexual union between husband and wife, but it means so much more. Like it means you are one. It's not John Mark and then Bridget, who is my wife. It's, it's John Mark and Bridget. It's the Harrisons who have established this family and God has given them in their care, Cade and Mia. And one day as they grow up and they start their families, God will continue to add to our family through their families. 
One of the things that happens is my, in my house is, or in my, when I'm with my parents is my dad always prays that God would bless our families. And at first that bothered me. It's like, why are you praying? Like, did I get kicked out? Are we not one? And he goes, no, man, you left when you got married. So I don't pay your bills. And, and so it's this picture of like, we are families because we're one with our spouse. Like when you begin a family, you give up your individual freedoms and you function as one. Like in a simple way, that, that's why I eat at places like Panera Bread and Kava. Because Bridget wants to go there. I'd never go there. I just drive separately and swing through McDonald's on the way home. But in a more complicated way, like that now becomes the filter of every decision we make. Not what do I want, not what does she want, but what is, do we want? Like it's oneness, what has God called us to? Which means when Bridget has success, I have success. And when I have success, she has success. Our enemy wants us to make us think that we should function as individuals inside of a family, but that's not what God's word has said. It's not what I can make or what she can make. It's what God has provided and what we can steward so that we might be one in his eyes and teach our children to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and might. This is what flourishing looks like. Finally today, see in verse 25, that God's plan for relationships cast out shame. God's plan for relationships cast out shame. Shame. Verse 25, his wife were naked and were not ashamed. Think forward into Genesis chapter 3. You've probably heard these stories before, but Adam and Eve were in the garden. And the serpent tricked them, tempted them, and they sinned. They ate the fruit of the one tree that God had reserved for himself. And Genesis chapter 3 declares when they realized their sin and their innocence was destroyed, that they went out of the garden, they hid behind a bush, and they covered themselves. Like, see the difference in chapter 2, verse 25, they were naked and not ashamed, and, and in chapter 3, they're hiding and covering themselves. Like, the stain of sin in our life is shame. Like, that was the lasting fruit of the sin for Adam and Eve. And their punishment was that everything became more difficult. Work became difficult. Childbearing became difficult. The weeds and thorns of the field were now in existence because of the rottenness of sin and its destroying of creation. And so we can begin to understand, like, when they were walking in purity, they were unashamed. But as they lived in sin, they lived under the shadow of shame and learned to hide themselves and ever since Genesis chapter 3 there's this been there's been this eternal fight for authenticity this eternal fight for us to be fully known and real we always want to shrink back and hide why because we're afraid someone will find out that we're not who they think we are listen to me now if you're trying to make a name for yourself People will find out that you're not who they think you are and you will find and feel shame. But if you choose to only be known in and through Christ, they will see Christ and his grace in your life and they will glorify your Father in heaven. And so living 
in shame is a choice we make when we don't follow God's plan for our lives. Listen to how Paul wrote it. Paul said in Philippians 3, 14, he says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything, any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Paul, who earlier in Philippians 3 had given his spiritual resume and had every reason to be proud of what he had accomplished. He's like, hey, like all of that stuff and all of that opposing God and all of that just kind of living my own way, I'm gonna press on from that to the upward call of God. I'm gonna move on from my past because I've been changed. I'm gonna move on from my past because I've been redeemed. You see, what Paul was declaring in Philippians 3, he was declaring that he was choosing to stand on a firm foundation of Christ, not stand in his abilities as Paul. Because when we stand on a firm foundation of Christ, we have spiritual health and we have relational health. But until we repent of our sin and have our shame covered by the blood of Jesus, we can never experience this health because we can never walk in purity. Like purity is only found in and through Christ. Like every New Testament passage related to marriage and family, the author is calling people to purity. So purity is the goal for my family. When I walk in purity, I'm then loving God with all my heart, my soul, and my might. And so it's not that I am enticed by the sins of the world, it's that I'm pursuing Christ with all purity. The Bible teaches that if we confess our sins and have faith in Christ's sacrifice and resurrection, we are adopted into God's family. And when we're adopted into his family, we are cleansed from our unrighteousness and he eternally secures our future. That's why Paul could write Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I don't have to live enslaved to my past. Shame and regret, that's what is behind me. But what's before me is no condemnation. I have a better future because of Christ. Listen to Titus 3. The scripture says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the eternal hope of eternal life. See, friends, he's saying we were once shame, but we are now living his life. God's plan for relationships, it, it cast out shame. Look, some of us, we live with shame because of a divorce or because of a lifestyle of sin that we just can't get over. If you today will repent and begin to pursue purity, the shadow of shame will be removed. Like, you don't have to live in the shadows. You can come to the light of Christ. Like, you can hold your head up high because of his work in you. It may not be divorce. Maybe it's infidelity. 
Look, man, you don't have to hide and cover and keep that sin. You can come into the light and be forgiven of that sin if you'll come to him and repent. Stop living in the shadows of shame. You can repent from your immorality. You can repent from your addiction to pornography. And God will take away the shame that comes with every one of these sexual sins. It's interesting that Jesus calls sexual sin, sin against one's own body. That's why we feel so much shame when we sin sexually. Because we're actually sinning against ourselves. So what do we do? Man, we pursue purity. We allow Jesus to take the shadows of our shame and we walk in his victory. Look, some of us, we hear a message on family and all we can think about is how we've messed up. Start today pursuing purity. Move your mind from your past to your future. Your future is bright in the purity of Christ. Forget what lies behind. Press toward what's ahead. Some of us, we're anxious because we know we need to get married. Maybe we're living with a girlfriend or a boyfriend and we're just kind of playing house. Now, culturally, living together before marriage is acceptable, but it cannot be biblically acceptable because when you leave father and mother and cleave to spouse, there is spiritual covering that comes with that, and that spiritual covering happens at the covenant between you and your spouse before God. And so if there's no covenant, there's no leaving and cleaving, and there's no spiritual covering. So you're living outside of God's ability to flourish and bless you. So there's some of you today, man, you need to get married. Like there, there's, there's others of you that you know that the person you're with is the, your spouse and you're just putting off getting married because you're trying to save a certain amount or because you really like living in your parents' basement or because something else is going, like, grow up, man. Get married. Like, it's the natural next step for you that God has brought you one who you believe is to be your spouse and you make a covenant commitment to her. You say, well, I don't know if she say yes. I promise if you show her your covenant for the rest of your life to her, and if she's feeling what you're feeling, she'll say yes. So I want to help you. Y'all going to think I'm crazy. I want to help you. You know, some folks, they don't get married because it's so expensive. It don't have to be expensive. I'm cheap. Some people, they don't get married because they don't have a place. We got a roof. Some people, they don't get married because they're like, well, how do I afford all the stuff? I mean, break out that Advent candle thing if I need to. <laughs> figure out some flowers. Figure out how to make it happen. I'm telling you now, I'm serious. I'm not joking. I'm serious. I'm, we'll help you. But you got to tell us you're serious about getting married. So you text get married to 57158. <laughs> Y'all think I'm, y'all think I'm, no, I'm serious. 
here's what's going to happen. So one of our pastors is going to reach out to you. We're going to call you in for a meeting. We want to hear about your relationship with the Lord. We want to hear about your future spouse's relationship with the Lord. You guys talk about your relationship with the Lord. You show me the plan you got, the job you have, the house that y'all will live in. Like, we'll check these boxes biblically, and guess what then we're going to do? We're going to get married. <laughs> and it will be awesome. You say, well, it, it might not, that, that's not how I thought my marriage would go. Well, you want it God's way, or you want the mess you got right now? <laughs> what, what about, man, you can throw a party at any time. Man, throw a party... Two years from now, when you save the money for the party you want to throw. I'm telling you, it is better to do it God's way. God's plan will cast out shame. God's plan will lead to flourishing because you were created for that relationship you crave. So walk in it according to God's plan. Thanks for joining us this week on the Concord Online Podcast. If you have any questions surrounding today's sermon or simply want to learn more, you can do so at concordonline.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay up to date with each weekly release.